my life from a few years ago, uh, actually many years ago now, my family and I were skiing in Colorado uh, one spring break and uh, just gotten done finishing a particular run and got down to the lift and I was by myself. And so as I got in the line, the, the lift guy put me sort of randomly with somebody else on the lift. And so, and in this case, it was, it was a little kid. I mean, the kid must have been eight years old tops. So the two of us are riding up the lift together, total silence. And about halfway up the lift, he turns to me and he says, uh, you're from Texas, aren't you? I looked over at the little kid and I said, uh, I, I was real curious because I hadn't said anything. So it's not like he could have heard what little accent I have. And so curiosity got the better of me. And I said, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am from Texas. How did you know that? And he rolled his eyes and he said, Psh, that's easy. Nobody else skis in blue jeans. <laughs> I did resist the urge to push him off into a snowbank at that point. Those moments, though, are really good for us, to be honest. Those, those little few moments that remind us, as painful or embarrassing as they might be, where we came from. And you guys now are in the middle of a series on Revelation, that great and beautiful book of the consummation of all things at the end of the age. And so I thought, how appropriate then, right at this midpoint in this beautiful book, to remind ourselves where we came from. How did we get here? How did we get in the middle of this cosmic struggle between good and evil that you're going through week after week in this sermon series? And so to talk about that, I wanted to go back, back to the beginning, back to the roots there of that conflict in Genesis chapter 3. And as you can see in your bulletin, we'll be going through the entire chapter this morning. And so instead of reading that large block, we'll just read it in little chunks as we go along. Now, you might have noticed that the title of the message this morning is kind of peculiar. It's two dreadful introductions. And here in this beautiful story, this arc, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we see in Genesis chapter 3, two genuinely dreadful introductions into this great story of God. Now, for dreadful, I'm just using the common uh, definition. Something that causes great dread, fear, or terror. So something that causes great dread, fear, or terror. And the first of those two introductions is written right across the face of the, the passage, and that is the introduction of sin. And we're all familiar with that, right? We all know about sin. We experience it all the time. In fact, many of us may have experienced some of it in the car on the way to church this morning. And so that being the case, why do we need to talk about it? Why do we need to go over this, this sin thing one more time? Well, as you know, from your study in Revelation, and the rest of the Bible, actually, for that matter, we are in a real war against a real enemy who really hates us. And the better we know that enemy, the better we can prepare ourselves, not just individually, but as members of the bride of Christ. We are a family. We are a single body. And so we must prepare ourselves for that day. And we wait, we wait with longing for that day when Christ will come at the end of the age and make all things right. But in the meantime, we stand. And the better we know our enemy, the better we can be prepared to fight alongside one another as brothers and sisters. And so to prepare ourselves for that and to make ourselves ready as we were for that, that great consummation at the end of the age. Let's look at the beginning of, of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. And it begins this way, it says... Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, you hear people say stuff like this all the time. 
I cannot believe you fell for that. That is the oldest trick in the book. No, actually, literally, this is the oldest trick in the book. Uh, if you look at it, the next time someone says that, say that to them. No, 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 no. Let me tell you about the oldest trick in the book. It's four little words. Did God actually say, or in some translations, did God really say? Now, we need to really realize just how devastatingly powerful those four little words are and how much pain and suffering those four little words have caused over and over and over again. Because you and I, personally, all of us here, have known marriages that began to crumble with, did God really say you're not supposed to look on your neighbor's wife with lust? Or friendships have crumbled with, did God really say that we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger? Think about how many addictions have begun with, did God really say sin is crouching at our door and we must master it? Or how many churches have tumbled over, did God really say we're not supposed to gossip? Think about how many entire denominations we have seen fall, even relatively in our lifetimes, over applying those four little words, did God really say to the entire Bible? I mean, isn't it just kind of a, a myth book? Or isn't this really just the words of men? Did God really say? And people have applied that across the entire scriptures and whole denominations have tumbled over those four little words. It is devastatingly powerful. And it's really step one of three steps that Satan has used over and over and over again. He doesn't need to change his game plan. It is so elegant. It is so simple, yet so devastating. But if we would just understand it, we could stand better as the bride of Christ against his schemes. So step one, getting people to question the word of God. Did God really say? Step two, we pick it up right in the middle of verse one there again. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you think about that, that's kind of a clumsy question, right? It doesn't seem like much of a trick. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any of these trees? Like you can't eat anything here? And the answer is so obviously no. And you see that Eve rushes to correct him, right? How, why would he use that? I mean, is it just that he's new and he's getting his feet wet in the whole temptation thing? Or is it something much more subtle and far more powerful than that? And I want to suggest to you that it is. It's actually very clever. Because what you can see that he's not trying to trick Eve here. He's not trying to trick her into get, saying, oh, well, this and that. No, he's redirecting her attention. Instead of getting her attention on all the rest of it, he actually gets her to say it. He gets her to point out the one thing that you can't. You can't have any of this stuff? Oh, no, Mr. Serpent. It's just that one thing over there. He gets her to focus on the one thing that, he can't have, that she can't have. And it's dissatisfaction. And it's one of the most powerful weapons that the serpent has against all of us. And the Lord's church is dissatisfaction. Every single person in this room, all of us, have experienced blessings, double handfuls of blessings from God. And yet how many of us, maybe even right now, but certainly at different points of our lives, have experienced true dissatisfaction in different areas? Why? How can that be? Because sin has a really subtle and amazing way of redirecting our mind from the 99.99% of those blessings to those one few little things that we can't have that will, in fact, destroy us. And then he moves on to step three. And you'll see in verse four, actually, he repeats step one and two to cement them really solidly. It's, it's, a, it's a very clear pattern that we see throughout scripture. Look again, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, 
You will not surely die. Now, not just subtly challenging the word of God, directly challenging the word of God. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Again, not subtly saying, um, directing her mind to the one thing she couldn't have, directly saying that thing, that thing, that thing, not getting her to say it. Now he's hammering it home very directly to her. And then step three, once that dissatisfaction sets in, that is so dangerous, we need to understand as Christians, dissatisfaction is such a dangerous thing to our Christian life. And once that sets in, the trap is set, and it's really hard to get out. He says, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He just fans the lust that's already in her eyes and already in her hearts. He's gotten her redirected. And all he's got to do is fan the flame of that lust, and he's got her fully trapped in her sin. It's like the businessman. You look at him and he has an an enviable lifestyle. Beautiful house, beautiful job, beautiful family, wife, kids, all of that. But it's the secretary. And you think, why would you throw away something that 95% of everybody would be dying to have over something that's meaningless and trivial and yet that's the way it works. It is so deceptive. We are so blind in these ways to fall into that trap and again, questioning the word of God and then being redirected into a dissatisfaction with God and then having the flames of our lust inflamed. And if we realize this is how sin works and we need to think about that, then we can actually be a very effective way to defeat sin. As a matter of fact, all of us have the responsibility and privilege as Christians to work as counselors for our fellow believers. We speak the truth of God into their lives as they're struggling with various things. And if we think about those are the three steps, then we can undo sin by those three steps, doing them in reverse. For example, we need to know and believe what the word of God says. It's amazing how unfamiliar so many believers are actually with the word of God. So we need to know it when we need to believe it. And we need to constantly confess God's goodness. And you see that in the Psalms. Every time the psalmists are struggling with depression and other things, they, they constantly bring themselves back to the goodness of God in the past and the present and remind their hearts where they're supposed to be. And then step three, after they've reminded themselves, then they inflame their passions for God and remind themselves his beauty and his excellency. Now, a couple of interesting points, actually, from this section. If you look back in verse 4, the serpent says, you will not surely die. And actually, in Hebrew, it's a very interesting construction. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. If you, if you translated it very sort of literally, it would sound like, dying, you will not die. It's, it's, an, it's an unusual way to say that, actually. And so he, the, Eve says, oh, if we eat of this, we'll die. And he says, dying, you will not die. And it's curious and it's interesting. And we think, well, why would he put it in a construction like that? Except for that's not the first time that construction's been used in the Bible. Back in Genesis 2, when God told Adam, you can eat of any tree, but you may not eat of that. Because the day you eat of that, dying you will die. And what's interesting is, as Satan, or or the serpent, responds to Eve, he doesn't use her language. He uses God's language. And what we need to understand is every time you and I are challenged with sin, and we are challenged with sin on a daily basis, as you well know and as I well know, but as we're challenged with sin, we need to remember, you are not the primary target. God is. The war is between the serpent 
and the seed of the woman. The, the war is not primarily with us. We are just pawns in that game. As a matter of fact, the serpent would love to destroy God. But how do you destroy the God, as we said just earlier in the service, dwells in unapproachable light? How do you destroy a God like that? You can't touch a God like that. But he's made us in his image. And if you can muddy the image, if you can damage the image, if you can distort the image... You can muddy the reputation and name of God himself. And so that is his plan. He attacks God as it were through us. Because you have to remember, Satan himself is not made in the image of God, but you are. And if he can attack you, he can get at the glory of God. And so you have to remember that all of our struggle against sin, all of this great battle against the serpent and sin and death and hell that we fight in this world is an act of worship. This is about the name and the glory of God. And so the battle of sin, and if we are to engage sin as we properly should as believers, we need to understand that the battle against sin is an act of worship to God. That's one thing. And the other kind of interesting thing comes in verse 5. Satan, the serpent, makes an interesting promise. He promises that she will see. He says, if you eat of it, your eyes will be open. In other words, you will see. And what's interesting is in the very next verse, in verse 6, she sees three times. She sees and she sees and she sees. She sees the tree is good for food. And she sees that it is a delight to the eyes. And she sees that it is desired to make one wise. So he says, if you eat of this, you will see. And in the next verse, she sees and she sees and she sees. And she stretches out her hand and she grabs the fruit and she takes of the fruit. And then her eyes are opened. And then she really sees. And what does she see? She sees that she is naked. And all she can now see is her nakedness and her shame. And we've all experienced that. We thought we saw. We thought we saw the pleasures, right? And we stretched out our hand and we took. And then we really saw. We saw our nakedness and our shame. Just something I would love to encourage you with. is something that we are working on in our, in our home church to be more active in. If you see your brothers and sisters beginning to believe these lies and beginning to drift, please be that one who speaks truth into those lies. Be the one that speaks truth into their lives. Because that struggle against sin is not just individual, it's corporate. And if that struggle against sin is not just worship individually, it's worship corporately. And by helping your brothers and sisters in their struggle by, by saying... I need to get into their life. I need to invest in them. I need to reach out to them. It is an act of worship to God to invest in your brothers' and sisters' lives when they're beginning to struggle and drift. And so that's it. That's the fall. And we think of Genesis 3 as the fall story, and, and it is. But what you notice is the bulk of it has really nothing to do with the fall. It's just those seven short verses, and it's over. And the entire rest of Genesis chapter 3 doesn't focus on the fall. Genesis 3 is not primarily the story of sin. It's the story of God's redeeming grace. And I want to spend the rest of our time there. Look what it says in verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said... I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
Now, Adam and Eve had just thrown double handfuls of mud onto the reputation of God. And the right response would have been to destroy them. Or at the very least, God should have backed up two steps. He should have crossed his arms and he should have said, you know what? When they get around to apologizing, we'll see about forgiving them. But of course, that's not what he does. The very next verse after the fall, immediately what is God's response? He comes and he looks for them. There's a poem, perhaps many of you have read it, and if not, I would recommend it to your reading. The Hound of Heaven. And the concept of the poem is relatively simple. It describes God as the great hound of heaven coming for lost sinners. And why hounds? When you're hunting foxes or rabbits or whatever, why hounds? It's not that they're particularly fast. They're really not. Uh, Most times rabbits and foxes can outrun hounds. So why? It's because they don't get tired. And so as you and I, like little foxes and rabbits, as we run out in front of the Lord and we, like Jonah, think, well, if I can just get away from the presence of God, I'll feel better because of my sin. But he follows and he follows and he follows and he lets us wear ourselves out and eventually catches us. And so if you're here and if all of us that are believers know this, we know what it's like to have been chased down by the hound of heaven. Perhaps it was through the tears and prayers of a parent maybe the the witnessing of a friend or a book or however it happened, the hound of heaven came and looked for all of us. And perhaps there's some of you that even today are experiencing that. You're here. And why? Because one is coming to look for you. This God that we talk about Sunday after Sunday is a gracious God. He's the God that doesn't leave you, the God that doesn't wait. He's the God that comes and seeks He is a God well worth worshiping. It is such a beautiful redeeming grace that he extends to us. But that's not the only one we see in Genesis 3. What is the immediate response after they sin? They go and they hide and they sow fig leaves together. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? It's because they had another gift that they knew nothing about. Something that God placed inside of them. He knew they would need it. They couldn't even imagine that they would need it, but he knew. He knew they would need a conscience. He knew they would need that red light on the dashboard of their lives, as it were. And that pain, that emotional pain that they felt and that you and I feel when we do wrong, that emotional pain is one of the most beautiful gifts from God. It's like physical pain. If we put our hands over a flame and it burns, we pull it back. And that pain, it's uncomfortable and it's terrible but it prevents future damage and it really is a mercy of God. And in the same way, that emotional pain that we feel with our conscience is also a beautiful gift of God. It helps us in the midst of that. It helps us to back away from something that will do irreparable damage to our lives. So it really is uh, very much a gift. And of course they respond wrongly and we know how it goes in verses 12 and 13. Oh, the woman you gave me. Ah, the serpent tricked me and... They start pointing fingers at each and every way. Some of you guys who who know us know that a big part of what we do down in Mexico is counseling. And we have taken on some very serious cases down there. And it's fascinating to me how often in the counseling room you hear Adam and Eve. Well, if you just understood my bad childhood, you would... Oh, if you just understood how stressful my job is. Oh, if you just understood my wife's nagging, you would understand... 
it's Adam and Eve all over again. Nothing has changed. We hear it over and over and over again. Because what they're trying to do is avoid the pain of that conscience. That conscience is saying something. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in their lives. And here's just a little tip for all of you as counselors. If all of you as you're approaching fellow brothers and sisters or even unbelievers who are struggling with problems of conscience. Let me give you this tip and this is really important. If someone comes to you and they say something like, you know, I don't really feel like a very good husband or wife lately, or, you know, I really don't feel like life is worth living. Our, our natural inclination is to say, no, 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 you're a great husband. Oh, you're a great wife, is to, to kind of pacify them and tell them how good life is and to try to encourage them. Please don't do that right away. The Holy Spirit is doing something in their lives. The Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is bothering their conscience. Instead, hear them. Take seriously what they're saying. Help them through that. Say, that sounds serious. Talk to me more about that. And in that way, participate in that great worship that we participate in together as we help each other, one another, through the sin. Take that, those little pricks of conscience seriously when, they, when somebody reveals one to you. Here's a question for thought. What's the big deal with eating a piece of fruit? I mean... God curses them and kicks them out of the garden over a piece of fruit? Seriously? I mean, that seems like kind of overkill, doesn't it? A little bit? Wasn't God a little bit overly harsh? Honestly, what is really the big deal there? Why did God go to those lengths over that? And I think to best understand that, you really need to understand something else. Now, actually, I've made, if you've noticed, I've made an error more than once already in this message. I keep accidentally calling the serpent Satan, and I keep correcting myself. I keep saying Satan, I mean the serpent. You know that, and I know that, because we know the end of the story. We know who that is. But you have to remember, Eve doesn't know who that is. She can't know yet who that is. Now, here's a question. Who does Eve think the serpent is, or what does she think the serpent is? As far as she knows, that's a part of creation. And what is her role? What is her and Adam's role in creation? They were supposed to rule over the creation. And so if part of the creation is now rebelling against God, what is their role as rulers over the creation? She should have disciplined the serpent. Or she should have punished the serpent and brought the serpent back in line under the rule and reign of God. But she doesn't. Instead of, as God ordered the universe, himself here and Adam and Eve here over the creation. Instead, she tries and bows the knee to creation. She tries to get under the creation and to submit to the creation. And at the same time, she tries to get out from underneath God in the same move. This is treason. God ordered the universe in a particular way, and here she is. She doesn't know what that is. She just thinks it's part of the creation. And in a cosmic act of treason, she tries to get under the creation and out from underneath God. Now, where have we seen that before? Where have we seen that order before? We've seen it in Romans 1. Now, what happens in Romans 1? They refuse to acknowledge God. They try to get out from underneath God. And so what is the next step that they take after refusing to acknowledge God? They begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. They try to get under the creation. And then what is the natural result also in Romans 1? 
then they become inflamed with lusts. It's Genesis 3 all over again, reconfirmed in the New Testament. Nothing has changed. You can turn on any TV channel. You can look on your front page of your Facebook. And it's Genesis 3 and Romans 1 all over again. Nothing has changed. The plan has worked so well. That design has been so elegant to keep us us sinning over and over again. That Satan has not changed his game plan in all of that time. And so they sin. And God curses them. And he curses them in a peculiar way. He gives them exactly what they want. It's, they wanted, they didn't want to be ruling over the creation. They wanted to submit to it. He says, fine, go to war with the creation if that's what you want. Pain and childbirth, suffering and labor, and everything that's flown out of that. Now, let me ask you a question. What are earthquakes? What are tornadoes? What are floods? What are those things? That's the war that we started. That's the war that we started and we asked for, made flesh, in real time. We asked for that war. We asked to be at war with the creation. We have carried on that war with the creation. And the creation has been battling us ever since. That is truly dreadful. This has been a dreadful, awful introduction. Now with the brief time we have left, we don't have much time left. With the brief time left, I want to mention the second dreadful introduction that Genesis 3 makes. And it is an even more dreadful introduction than even the introduction of sin itself. And the second dreadful introduction of Genesis 3 is the introduction of Jesus Christ. And you think, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just call Jesus dreadful? How can you say that Jesus, the introduction of Jesus is a dreadful introduction? Well, now think about it for a second. Remember the definition causing great fear, dread, or terror. Now, what is the Bible? From Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is the story of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And if you were going to introduce your main character, if you were God himself and you were going to write the most amazing story that will ever be written in all of the history of humankind, how would you introduce your main character? How breathtaking is it or surprising is it or shocking is it That Jesus is formally introduced in the scriptures in the middle of a curse. It's an interesting way to introduce your main character of your story. Verse 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Make no mistake, Jesus is a curse. Not to us, but to Satan and death and suffering and hell. He is coming as the very hammer of God against all of the enemies of God. He is coming as the dread conquering Lord. He is coming to put down his enemies. And even that final enemy which will be death. To put him down under his feet. Make no mistake the dreadful one is coming. We're so used to thinking of Jesus. You know gentle Jesus meek and mild. You know carrying the lamb on his shoulders or whatever. That we don't think about how he was introduced. We forget how he was introduced. And we forget how he's coming back in Revelation. Well, you'll study that in a number of weeks from now. How he's coming to put down the great dragon, the great serpent, which we'll actually talk about in two weeks from now. 
And he's coming. The very hammer of God is coming. The curse against all things wrong with this world. Think of a machine of war, if you will. Think of a great aircraft carrier or a fighter bomber or, or whatever. Now those things bring war and death and destruction. But if they come into the battle on your side, it is one of the greatest comforts and joys that you can have because that power is coming to save you. That power is coming to put down your enemies. So here, as you guys are seeing the end of it, the consummation in Revelation, here we see in Genesis 3, Christ himself stepping down into the battlefield of human history to put down everything that's been made wrong with the world and to put it right. He himself is coming down, the dread Lord, to come down and put down his enemies. And Adam sees it. I think Adam sees it. And he responds to that coming in faith. And you say, how do you know that? How could you possibly know that Adam believed? Well, look what it says in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Eve in Hebrew is literally life. He calls his wife life. Because she was the mother of all the living. He knew he would not die. That one that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. They would go on living because of that one. And so he says, we will live, we will continue, generations will go forth. And so he called his wife's name Eve. And that's the tiniest seed of faith. It's the tiniest little glimmer of faith. And yet, just with that one little glimmer in the very next verse, Jesus begins the work of redemption. Look what it says in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And as we know from Hebrews in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood... There is no redemption or no remission of sins. And so God kills. God kills animals and uses that sacrifice to cover their nakedness and their shame. And I think it's a beautiful detail, actually, that it says they don't clothe themselves. That God himself clothes them. He didn't just hand it to them and go, here, put this on. He himself wrapped up their nakedness and shame in his sacrifice. One of the very darkest of chapters. The very darkest of chapters in the entire Bible. Heaven whispers twice. To all who follow the serpent, he says, be afraid because he's coming. The dread Lord is coming. But to all who follow the lamb, he says, don't be afraid because he is coming. And he is coming and he will save you. I said this chapter was all about grace. And it closes. As it closes, God shows his mercy and grace one more time. And he does so by throwing them out of the garden. And you think, how can that be gracious? So we don't live forever in this disordered world. In this world of suffering and aging and disease and violence. Even now, death itself has no power over us. No fear. Because of what he has done. So in conclusion, let me say this. There are perhaps some of you, maybe brought by a friend, for whatever reason that you're here, maybe there are some of you who are still asking, did God really say? You only see the prohibitions. You you hear these messages week after week, and all you see is the the God who wants to to shut you down and and to, to not bless you. 
And so you begin to lust for the very things that will end up destroying your life. And you cover your fig leaves, yourself with fig leaves and your shame, like we talked about in the confession of sin today. And if you do that, if you insist on reordering God's world to suit yourself, then actually God will do for you exactly what he did for Adam and Eve. He will give you exactly what you want. He will let you submit yourself to sin and suffering and death. But like Adam, the hound of heaven is coming. He is coming and perhaps there is one of you or more and you feel that call on your life. And if you do, trust his word. Hold on to his word and what it says. And I promise you, I promise you, he will clothe your nakedness and your shame. Not with animal skins, but with the righteousness of his very son, he will clothe you. And every time this broken and disordered world brings pain and suffering to you, and it will, and we all know that. And when it does, heaven whispers to you, don't be afraid. Not because he's coming, but because he has come. And he will come again very soon. And on that day, God will grant to you what he prohibited Adam from doing so many years ago. He will allow you to stretch out your hand and take and eat from the tree of life and to live forever. May it be so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we, we long for that day. Lord, we groan for that day. Our hearts are set on that day. When that dreadful yet beautiful one is coming, Lord, may we be ready on that day. May we be prepared on that day. May we love each other enough to help each other so that we may be presented before you on that day, a radiant bride. May we be clothed with your righteousness. May we strive to be unstained by this world. Lord, may you bless, may you bless this people. May you bless this congregation, Lord. May they know, may they know the beauty of being standing behind you when you come on that day and to have you fight for them instead of against them. Lord, I pray for these people, Lord. I pray for all of us, Lord. May we be found standing on that day. Lord, we thank you for this gift. Lord, we thank you for that clothing of that righteousness in your son. Lord, may we never, may we never take it for granted. May we never see it as something common. May we see it as something beautiful and may we strive and push forward and encourage each other as long as it's called today and build each other up, Lord. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for being here this morning by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us. I pray that your spirit would guide us. I pray that your spirit would make our hearts sing with worship this week, this entire week, Lord. 
as we challenge one another with these things. We thank you, Father, in your Son's name. Amen.